Well, I want to add my welcome. Glad that you're here and glad that you're tuning in. I've missed you because I've been, July's been a, was a crazy month for me. I took a week of vacation. I moved and I went to a conference. So I was like, almost like, I haven't seen you in a while and I've missed you. And I'm, I'm glad to be back with you. I want to start with a story from uh, when I was young. Some of y'all have heard this story because I've, I've told it once before, but um, I'm an identical twin. And uh, you may not know that today because we look so different. You know, he's, he's way bigger than me and so on and so forth. I'm joking. He's watching online. So. <laughs> but we're, we're, we were really looked alike in high school. And I remember the very first uh, girl that I ever took out on a date in a car. Her name was Tracy. And um, we ended up dating for a few weeks after that. But one day she's over at the house and my twin brother, since the time we were in first grade, we didn't dress alike. But on this, but we did sometimes my mom would buy us the same shirts or whatever. And on this particular day, we went, we were also a little unusual because we went to different high schools. I went private, he went public. And um, anyway, we had the same shirts on. It was a Friday and we realized we had the same shirts on. And one of us, I can't remember which one of us had the idea of let's play a joke on her. So we switched our shoes and uh, he came out into the room and he sat down on the couch next to her and put his arm around her and is sitting there like this. And I came in the room and started talking to her and he kind of kept scooting a little closer and getting a little more cozy. I was like, hey, it's not funny anymore. And, um, and so I finally said to her, okay, yeah, that's, that's, that's my twin brother, Stuart. And, uh, and then she was like, nah, no, that's not, no. And so it took a long time to convince her that we had played this joke on her. I know you won't be surprised to learn that like the next week or maybe even that week, she broke up. <laughs> it was meant to be a joke, but I certainly learned the consequence very severely of lying or telling an untruth, let's say, and what it, what it meant. And that's actually what we're going to talk about today. If you're uh, joining us and you haven't been with us on this ride, this is the ninth week of a 10-week sermon series where we're looking at the Ten Commandments. And week nine is the ninth commandment. We're talking about how you should not bear false witness against your neighbor. And we're going to spend some time uh, unpacking that. And if you haven't been with us on the whole thing, it doesn't matter because they each stand alone. But where I'd like to go today is I'd, I'd like to talk about what this commandment meant when it was given. I'd like to talk a little bit about what I think it might mean for us today. And then I want to have a third bit where I just want to talk about some things for you to ponder that go even further kind of that direction. So when we start looking at this ninth commandment that you should not bear false witness against your neighbor, we should start with just a little bit of context about when it was given. So remember, this is the Israelites. They're enslaved in Egypt. Moses is, is brought up and it goes down and, and releases them. The re, that's when they really get formed into a people. They head off into the desert and, or the peninsula, Sinai Peninsula, and they're going to be there for 40 years, long time, before they're going to go to the promised land. And maybe you think, oh, they're so great. They've been formed in these people of God. They're so appreciative of being out of slavery and all this that they're not going to have conflicts. But they have conflicts. And they need judges. And so initially Moses does it all. And then you have this key moment in Scripture where his father-in-law Jethro says, yeah, you're working too hard. You need some more people to help. And so he raises up this whole body of other people that are going to help. They, they're managing all these conflicts and disputes. And part of that, as things developed, they came to a place where what developed within that time was 
a lot of the evidence they would hear was all about just what people would say, the witnesses. And they came up with this rule that said, you've got to have two people agreeing on the same thing or it's not going to go anywhere. You've got to have two people. And, and we see this, this becomes locked into Judaism and it continues on into Jesus's time, right? So you remember when Jesus is heading in, we're in the Holy Week kind of time frame, and they're trying to try Jesus. This is in Matthew 26. It says this, now the chief priests and the whole council were looking for false testimony against Jesus so that they might put him to death. But they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. At last, two came forward and said, this fellow said, I'm able to destroy the temple of God and to build it in three days. So it's fascinating to me that all the good that Jesus did throughout his ministry, all the people he healed, all the grace he's putting out there, all these different things, there are a whole bunch of people lining up who are ready to give false testimony against him. But there aren't two of them that have the same story that agree. But finally they get this one about the temple because he did say that, of course. He did say, destroy the temple and I'll rebuild it in three days. And so that's where they go after him. But this idea that you had to have two witnesses and having two witnesses was a big deal. So that, that's kind of the, that's the initial context of this commandment. It's, in the, it's sort of a legal setting of don't bear false witness against your neighbor in a legal setting. And that was how their legal system worked. And it was a really big deal. So if you came forward and it was found that they would investigate, and if they found out that you had what we would call today committed perjury, if you had lied about it, you would end up getting whatever penalty the person that was on trial would have gotten. So if it's a, it was a capital offense, you get a capital punishment out of it. So it was, it was a really big deal to speak the truth on this. And all the societies, around, uh, cultures around the world that, that embraced the Judeo-Christian Judeo tradition sort of end up with kind of two levels of this. They all say that lying is wrong, but there are two levels. There's perjury, which has its own punishments and is a different category. And then there's just lying and how we, how we deal with those. And, you know, this kind of stuff still goes on today, right? This still goes on today. I recently came across the story of uh, a man whose name is Daryl Burton. And here's what happened. Back in 1984 in St. Louis, there was a drug dealer who went to gas up his car. And while he's gassing up his car, somebody came and shot him and killed him. And one of the people who saw it from a distance came and said, well, it was it, the person who shot him was five foot five and was light skinned, was African-American, but light skinned. And uh, that's who it, that's what they saw. And, the, and then what came forward were two witnesses who were in the process of being sentenced for their own crimes, who came forward and, and they did a lineup and they pulled this one guy named Daryl Burton and they said, that's him. They both said, that's him. And then at the time of trial, I mean, think about some of these conditions. This guy, he met with his public defender for one hour before trial. And these guys came, both came forward and said, that's him. And he got convicted. But on the day of the trial, there was a woman who worked in the store who came, who came out. They didn't call her to the stand, but, they, but she came forward and said, that's not him. You got the wrong guy because this guy is too dark but it didn't affect anything because she didn't get on the stand. He got, Daryl Burton got convicted and he spent 24 years in jail 
before finally he'd heard about this person and he got some ministry of lawyers that came in and they eventually reworked it, got the judge to rehear it, so on and so forth. And he got out after 24 years. And, it, and it's a horrible situation, but it's a good story because he went on to seminary and he became a pastor and he's actually one of the pastors at the biggest Methodist church in the United States. But this idea of these two guys who got less time because what they did sent him to prison for 24 years, that still goes on. And the truth is, if we look at this ninth commandment and we stop there, most of us are thinking, that's it, we're done. That's five minute sermon, that's good, we're done. But actually there's a, like all the commandments we've done up to date, they, they have, they reach a lot further into our lives. They go a lot further. And it didn't take long in the church for people to begin to say, well, this isn't just for legal settings. This is a call to go much further and much deeper. So you get like St. Augustine who lived in the fourth and fifth century talking about this passage. Um, St. Augustine says in the Decalogue, in other words, the 10 commandments itself, it's written, you shall not bear false witness in which classification every lie is embraced for whoever pronounces any statement gives testimony in his own mind. So he's saying like any lie, like forget whether it's in court or not, like any lie or, or go forward to the 16th century. And John Calvin is also in this context saying it's bigger than that. It's bigger than that. He's saying that it's, it extends to be a, any false witness that's going to impact somebody's reputation. Any false witness. And he, this is how he says it. He goes on to say, the equity of this is perfectly clear. For if a good name is more precious than riches, a good man in being robbed of his good name is no less injured than if he were robbed of his goods. While in the latter case, false testimony is sometimes not less injurious than a rapine or, or violent seizure of property committed by the hand. Let me give one more of these. In the 17th century, this biblical scholar, Matthew Henry, that's... Um, did, the, did a commentary on the whole Bible. He gets to this passage and he says, it forbids speaking falsely about anything full stop. He says, he, he says this, quote, that it's against lying, equivocating in any way, devising or designing to deceive our neighbor, speaking unjustly against our neighbor to the prejudice of his reputation. And some would say that it's about any dishonest conduct. I wonder how, if you think this is relevant or not, how big of an issue is this? Do we do this? Is this, is this something that, that happens or not? Is this something we do? I wonder if we spend a little bit of time looking at each week, do we tell lies? Do we tell even little lies as we go along? I saw a study that was done a number of years back this was at the University of Massachusetts at Amherst. And what they did was they got, it's, only, it's a small study. It's about 200, it's a little over 200 students. But they, they paired them up in twos and they told them all that they were studying how people would interact when they were meeting for the first time. And so they'd never met. They put two of them together for have a conversation for 10 minutes and they videoed it unbeknownst to them. And then when it was done, they actually said, well, actually we're studying something else. We want you to watch the video and you tell us of any inaccuracies that you mentioned in your conversation. What percentage 
of people do you think told some kind of lie in 10 minutes of meeting somebody new? It ended up being like 62%. 62% of the college students in the course of meeting somebody new for the first time lied. And I don't know, I'm not gonna get into any kind of gender differences, but I read an article recently that, that suggested that, it, that men and women come at this differently, that the men oftentimes would lie to build themselves up and the women would oftentimes lie to make people feel better. I don't know. But 62% of them lied in doing this. And I wonder the hard question for us is, are we aware of what we're doing on that? And how seriously are we taking these kinds of things? What kind of lies are we telling in all of this? And um, there was a book written by a guy named Robert Feldman that was uh, on this uh, particular topic. He's a professor of psychological and brain sciences. And he wrote this book called The Liar in Your Life. Here's what he says. Most often the lies we are exposed to are not venal, venial, but rather ways to make social interactions proceed more smoothly. People lie to be agreeable or to make us feel better about ourselves. Of course, people also lie to build themselves up or to gain some advantage over us. And many of us lie to ourselves as much as we are lied to by others. And I wonder how much we do that and stretch things. And we begin to think about all the areas of life, uh, of life that we interact in and we begin to think about, okay, what am I doing in that area that we're just, we're just not even thinking about it. And one of these I want to think, I want to ask you to think about for a second is social media. How many times have you pushed a like on something you don't know? An article, or how many times have you shared it or tweet, retweeted it or done whatever with it on something you didn't really know? I thought about this week because I talked to a friend of mine whose, whose daughter has not yet been vaccinated. And she's struggling with this question about whether she should get vaccinated. And her concern in part is about fertility. And so she'd heard on the web or different places from the anti-vaxxers that if you get a vaccination, that your post-vaccination uh, miscarriage rate is something like 20%. That was what was presented to her. And so this friend of mine called up an OB-GYN friend and said, this is what, we're, what she's heard and this is what's going on, is that true? And the OB-GYN more or less sort of chuckled and said, yeah, sort of. What she went on to say was that, yeah, your people in their 20s, miscarriage rate is between 20 and 25%, higher in the 30s, higher in the 40s. So yeah, it's true. Anybody before they get vaccinated, at least has a 20% chance. So yeah, it makes sense that we haven't seen any data differently yet, but, but they were using sort of, it's true, but not true and how it's put out there. And how many people forwarded that or said it or repeated it or did whatever without knowing that, without listening to that, without looking at that. It's a big issue, particularly in the, in the social media realm. Right after the 2016 election, uh, Pew Research did a big survey on this. Because, you know, obviously people are talking about what goes on with our news and the way we get it and all these things. And I thought it was interesting to look at the results of this. They talked about how 64% um, of adults believe that fake news stories cause a great deal of confusion. But they went on to report that 23% of the people in the survey said that they had shared something they thought might have been fabricated. That, that's another way of saying they're sharing, they're lying. 
When you share a story you think might be fake and put it out there for other people, you're embracing it. And it's a form, it's a form of a lie. And I wonder how many times we've done that and hurt others and the impact of that. And of course, this keeps getting more important and more important as our news sources become less and less the authoritative news sources and more and more peer news. And we share and we put it out there. All of this, as we continue to think, what does this ninth commandment mean to us in living out our lives? I think also brings us to think about gossip, which is way more than I want to really go into in this sermon. But I feel like I want to mention it at just at least a little bit about how we spread stories and how we present things. And think about how, again, about how serious this might be. Um, James um, talks about this in James 1. He said, he, well, he, he talks about the importance of our words. He says, if any think they are religious and do not bridle their tongues, but deceive their hearts, their religion is worthless. Or St. Paul, when he's talking, if you remember in Romans 1, how he's talking about the people have more or less sort of had some evidence of God, but turned their backs on God and what's happened to them. He goes on to describe them. This is how Paul talks about them in Romans 1. He says, they were filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, covetousness, malice, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, craftiness. They're gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, haughty, boastful. He goes on through this whole list, but he puts on this list with murderers and all these other things, those who gossip. And I wonder to what extent we've engaged in that without ever thinking about it. I know I have where we don't think about how many people's, somebody's reputation is being put down and we don't really know the facts, but we're telling the story and propagating it and all these different things that we do that way. And the thing about doing that, maybe one of the reasons why we should stop and really pause on that is because you're not really able to take it back a lot of times. There is this story about this saint that lived uh, in the, I think around the, the 16th century, named Philip Neary. And there's this often told story about him, about how he was a priest in Italy. And he had this woman who was like the town crier, but she also did a lot of gossip who came to confession. And she felt convicted to say something in confession about gossip. And this priest, Philip Neary, told her, okay, here's what I want you to do as part of your penance, your thanksgiving to God for the confession. I want you to go home and get a, a down pillow, well, that's all they had, a down pillow. And I want you to go up to the church bell tower and I want you to cut it open and shake it all out. And she did that. And she came back and said, I did it. And he's like, okay, well, I have one more thing for you. I didn't tell you. I want you to go pick up all the feathers, which of course she couldn't do. And that was his point. Gossip's one, and once it goes, it, it goes that way. There are two more things I want to mention that I want you to think about this week about this commandment. The first of which I just, I have to interject for a second about forgiveness because there is no question that every single person in this room has lied. Don't tell me otherwise or you're lying now, <laughs> but we've all lied. Everybody's lied, but some of us have done some really big ones and I don't want you to carry it forever. And I, I've told this story before, but I've, I read the manuscript of this again this past week, and I'm so impressed by it. But there, were, there was this 94, have y'all, have y'all, are y'all familiar with StoryCorps? It's this digital recording of people that they put out there to try to make our world better. And um, 
A number of years ago, I heard this recording firsthand. Um, but so it was this recording where the son of this 94-year-old doctor um, in New Jersey had recorded him. And then it gets put on StoryCorps and then it got picked up on the radio. But he told this story about when he was eight years old growing up in Atlantic City, how he'd been on the playground at their school and he accidentally bumped a kid and knocked his glasses off. And he was in trouble with this and he was trying to figure out how to solve it. And this is in the 1930s. It was going to take $2 to get a new pair of glasses for this kid that he'd hurt his glasses. And he's trying to solve it. He doesn't want to get in trouble with his dad because his dad's a very stern man and all this. And he's trying to figure it out. And then he remembers that the maid the family has, she works all day. At the end of the day, she gets paid $2. And he, he knows exactly where mom keeps the $2 that's already put out for the maid. So he, he went at age eight and he took the $2 and he took it to the teacher and resolved the whole thing. And that's all taken care of. But at the end of the day, the maid came to, to the mom and said, where's my $2? And the mom was like, you, are, you, you already took it. And she asked her son, like, you don't know anything about this. Like, no, no. So the mom fired the maid, never to return. And then not only did she do that, this is the gossip piece. She let the word get out around town that she thought this maid was dishonest. So this woman who was a single mom never worked as a maid again in that town and had to go elsewhere. But this man at 94 years old is doing this recording. And at this point he's weeping, talking about this secret that he's held for almost 80 years. And I wonder how many of us carry something like that. And I just want to put in just a little footnote here to say, one of the gifts we don't talk enough about in the church is a sacrament of reconciliation. Like in a few minutes, we'll do confession. Like confess anything you've lied about as part of that. But if you're carrying something that is just on your back and you, you're not able to get free from, make an appointment with one of the clergy to do the sacrament of reconciliation where you can hear the pronouncement, where you can tell another human what you've done, what you've said, and feel that release from it. Okay. The final thing I want to do is, is super quick. This is just super quick. I want to go back to something that Dr. Feldman said in that quote I did. How often do we, do we lie to ourselves? I grew up in uh, a place where I did, I did uh, moral theology in high school and I'll never forget the nun who, who taught the class teaching us that sin, this was her definition, was anything that alienates you from God, from your neighbor, or from your true self. That was her definition of sin. But this idea of what do we, how do we lie to ourselves in ways that alienate us from our true selves? It's an interesting question to ask. We're, we're not supposed to lie. What lies are you telling to yourself? And I wonder to what extent you have embraced a mission and a meaning from culture that's not you. And you're not living it. And part of your angst of life is culture and people and expectations are pulling you this way. And God or your purpose is going that way. And you're, not, and you're living this lie. And all the hurt. I, I recently read in the past week, I came across a um, New York Times bestseller woman that... Um, did her undergrad, master's, and PhD in sociology at Harvard, who's, who's written a lot of this, she would say that every bit of unhappiness that we experience in life is because of this difference between who we're meant to be and who we're, this lie that we're living. I don't know. I'm raising it for you to think about. What I do know is this. God at the highest levels 
for our own good, who loves us more than we even love ourselves, tells us, don't bear false witness against your neighbor. And I want to say maybe even to yourself. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, we thank you that you love us, that you want good for us, that you call us in grace, something we don't have to learn and we don't have to achieve. We just have to receive. Help us more and more to be faithful to your call to speak truth and to be true to who you called us to be. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.